before we start this episode, I would like to set the scene for you. It was an evening after work, a few months ago perhaps, and Hattie and I were tired, most likely on the verge of dual mental breakdown. Um, and I had accidentally locked our mic stands in my local church and just realised literally moments before I set off for the interview. Uh, essentially, I'm just trying to apologise for some of the poor audio quality of the upcoming episode with Hannah. We really hope it doesn't ruin your enjoyment of the episode, but we felt really passionate about putting the conversation out there regardless. Hannah was just one of those people that you have a conversation with and you just feel such hope and such passion about the work and the community that we are working and living within. We're always in total awe of the people that we interview that are so honest with us and so open. You know, people don't really know us. We usually email them a bit before we meet and then they just trust us with their stories and their words and the fact that we'll put them out there for them and we couldn't be more grateful. Let's get on to the show. Hello and welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with your hosts Hattie Butterworth and me Rebecca Toll. Within our vibrant musical world it can often feel that the struggles and humanity of musicians is lost and restricted. Having both suffered in silence with mental, physical and emotional issues, we are now looking for a way to voice musicians' stories, discuss them further and to connect with the many others who suffer like we have. No topic will be out of bounds as we are committed to raising awareness for all varieties of struggle. So join me, Hattie and guests as we attempt to bring an end to stigma by uncovering the things musicians don't talk about. Awesome, Hannah French with us, musician, broadcaster, musicologist, writer. So not much, just not? a couple of things. <laughs> Poorly missed. Yeah, a bunch of things. How are you, <laughs> Hannah? I'm I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. No, it's completely our pleasure that you're here. So I first came. I mean, I think I'd heard you on the radio off and on, but then I came across your documentary, um, "The Silence of My Pain." And I think I emailed you straight after listening to it because, well, I sent it to Hattie first. And then I don't think I even asked you. I just sent you I an email. Yeah, I didn't need to ask. Yeah, we're just so interested in your life as a broadcaster and living with chronic pain and Ellis Danlos. Yeah, Ellis Danlos. Ellis Danlos. Yeah. Almost got it. Good. Yeah, just to start off, would you be able to give our listeners just a kind of well, it's always really hard, but a summary of who you are. I was going to say how you got to this point, but there's so much in your life. So maybe let's start off with what you do currently. Well, I currently work for Radio 3 and I present the early music show and record review extra. So I'm a Sunday girl, really. But then throughout the week, I present breakfast, sometimes standing for Petrock, and I present live concerts. So lunchtime concerts from Wigmore Hall or from LSO St Luke's, and then evening concerts and proms and Radio 3 around Europe at Christmas, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so lots and lots. <laughs> and you do live with EDS. Would you be able to describe what that is? Because I wasn't mm. completely sure before. I'd heard you talk about it, what it was at all. Yeah. Uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a hypermobility syndrome. It's a collagen deficiency and it affects soft tissues. So uh, sometimes people call it kind of stretchy gone bad. <laughs> um, lots of people are hypermobile and that's fine. Um, but a hypermobility syndrome is when the bendiness becomes a problem mm-hmm. um, when it's associated with pain. Uh, and it tends to affect people, not exclusively, but it tends to affect people from their 
and early 20s onwards because as children you know loads of kids are bendy loads yeah. of kids dislocate and and there's nothing wrong with them that's just a normal part of growing up and that was me when I was little I didn't dislocate but I bent a lot I could do all the circus tricks and the lotus position and how far <laughs> my arms go and fell off more ponies than I had hot dinners and <laughs> bounced and never broke anything and all that kind of thing but the hypermobility syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome um, and Ehlers-Danlos actually you know I've, I've got the good type there are vascular types as well which are much more destructive and and pose threat to life mm-hmm. mine doesn't um, but there's no cure either so it affects as I say all the soft tissues and um, my joints will sublux really regularly occasionally they dislocate fully but very regularly they sublux so they partially come out of joint and then all around they get a spasm to try and stop that you know your body does try to help yourself but it tends sometimes to hold it ever so slightly out of mm-hmm. joint before it goes back in again so I, I stretch too much it's a little bit like being um elastigirl from the incredibles <laughs> i i reach too far i forget mm-hmm. it affects oh, from head to toe my um my jaw, my neck, my shoulders, my hands a lot. Um, my hip is massively affected and, and as a result of that and operations uh, and nerve damage and chronic pain in my hip, that's why I use a, a wheelchair. I have plasticity in my legs. As I try to walk, they turn inwards and they stretch and stretch and stretch, turning inwards. And wow. so I have about 12 really good steps and after that it's not pretty. Mm. And then, yeah, my knees and my ankles occasionally as well. But the more I use my chair, the more that's managed. And as I say, there is no cure. So it's all done through management, through physiotherapy. Mm. I have a, a fabulous osteopath and a combination seem to circle around things like um massage and acupuncture and you know Mm. all sorts of things in order to manage it and to sustain the quality of life that I hope to have Mm. sounds like a full-time job and then it affects the insides as well yeah so digestion um I have various things with my heart which actually are not connected we don't think um and my eyes uh yeah and and kind of associated asthma anything that stretches will mm. stretch um and if it didn't hurt it would be really fascinating yeah. um, and it still is quite fascinating but the pain is um at times extreme mm. um but as a base level in my hip it never goes away it goes away in my other joints because it hasn't got caught in that horrible cycle, but the chronic pain is there in my hip permanent. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, when I heard about your kind of journey and we haven't, haven't really mentioned yet, but you are or were a flautist, mm. a rock flautist. Yeah. And I mean, my, my first thought was, how do you go about accepting that you have a chronic pain as a musician? And mm. was it a, a kind of, a grieving period do you still play now or or is it sort of a sense <laughs> of you've had to let that go because of your eds how, yeah. how does that how does that work well first up i think that a lot of people who have hypermobility in the first place whether or not it's a syndrome are really predisposed to the arts um, certainly to dance mm. um, I mean I, I often joke and I shouldn't joke but you know in the past, I probably would have joined the circus I could be <laughs> but you know go quite seriously yeah. um, you know there's a real disposition towards that I I played the piano to a really decent level I went to uni as a, a pianist really and um, my technique was was foul because I could get around all sorts of things with these yeah. really bendy stretchy fingers that you know could contort do all sorts of things but it's, it's not sustainable over a long period and you don't really realize that when you're you know, I mean I, I I joked a bit about the flute because um the baroque flute has just one key um and it's the key that you play with your right finger and my right hand finger has an extra line in it do you see so oh, wow. it hasn't actually got an extra oh, wow. joint, but it's really, really long. Bendy. And so it's got four segments instead of three, which I've got on all the other ones. And that's the only one that I needed a key for. And the maker of my flutes was kind of a bit fascinated by that finger. And he was like, oh, it's great because on your flute, I can put the key here and you can still reach it because you've got a really long finger. All I mean is <laughs> there, are some, there are some benefits of it. Um, but yes, yeah, so I suppose I... 
I studied at university and I went to the Royal Academy of Music afterwards, postgrad, and then I played professionally. And I started falling over in my early 20s and mid-20s and um, was stone cold sober at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and would fall downstairs and step off buses and fall straight onto the, the pavement. And it was all a bit, um, well, it was really disconcerting. And... Mm. Um, and then my legs started twisting. I remember going to see my GP and by the time I saw her, my kneecaps were pretty much facing each other and she wow. immediately sent me off for tests and stuff. And at the time, I, I used to run a lot in the park. And wow. I mean, I had this funny run where my feet would flick out and people would mock it on occasion that they feel terrible. There. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it happened very slowly. Um, okay. I've got reports from the academy playing my flute and it said you know things that say you put both feet on the floor when you play mm. and I'd obviously started picking up my left leg oh. and I think that the you know my pain thresholds must be pretty high and so the pain that I was experiencing in my hip my knees were twisting round to accommodate it and to get it out of pain and all of that started over a really uh, long time so by the time I was falling over it's because my knees had twisted around so much that they would then catch and then partially dislocate and I'd, I'd fall so it was quite bizarre to begin mm. with and you know playing the flute you it's a very much a cross thing it's mm. a, a cross body you know and obviously there are ways in which you should sit and play properly and all that, but essentially you are on that diagonal mm. and I do sometimes wonder you know you, you sit in churches peering around you know columns to yeah. see the conductor and you know you, you do contort yourself so many musicians contort themselves mm. to play their instruments and you know I probably had all sorts of bad habits and you know to begin with they're like you must stop crossing your legs what all three of us sat here <laughs> you know stop crossing your legs stop, all these kind of habits that you get into of um uh it's not a leap for somebody with hypermobility to get into bad habits and over time for that to start wearing or to stop pushing and mm. then if you can if you do have that flexibility to keep moving and moving and moving and then before you know it as i say your kneecaps are facing each other you've got a really funny run and they start giving way as you start falling over um unfortunately for me it, it was quite a one-way street by that point mm. and it wasn't that long before um i, I it was just happening more, more and more often, and um, and then I started all sorts of rounds of treatment and physio, and I was on a Botox trial. I used to joke I had the smoothest thighs, smoothest <laughs> thighs in central <laughs> London. I'm sure many smoother, um, but you know, and and we used to put Botox into it to relax the muscles around my hip, and then they'd film my legs straightening up. And I'd be like, look, it's straight again. This is amazing. Wow. And then I get like three months. I have a long Botox lasts. Um, before it would uh, go back to where it was again and then had operations to try and replicate that and they went wrong and eventually it, it was because my hip was so mangled and you know it was presenting in other places it's always that thing isn't it it's like you never what you're actually looking at it's the knock-on from something else mm -hmm. um, and then over yeah numerous things that that tried to make happen and um, yeah uh, I increasingly had to use a wheelchair and the operations didn't work and the pain didn't go away and yeah um and then playing became just a whole new ball game because while I was on crutches I could kind of get two places and mm. I was quite I've always been fairly gung-ho and like oh I'm sure that'll be fine I'm sure I'll make that work and actually um and then it just became more and more difficult and as as we know as much as there's a lot of goodwill you know there are concert venues that are just not accessible it's amazing how many stages are actually not accessible mm. and yeah there were some memorable occasions with it well you know what historical performance is like you're playing in bandstands in the middle of muddy fields mm -hmm. and you know there were some memorable things with wheelbarrows to get to the ladies <laughs> you know and then even you know touring and flying and wheelchairs getting smashed up on planes and I just you know it got to a point where I was like, I have to really seriously consider that this isn't working. Mm. Um, and, yeah. And, you know, there were other things in the mix as well, but mm. eventually it just wasn't viable. It sounds exhausting, like, being in that space of performing and having to constantly kind of expect the next thing to go wrong. Um, would you say that, yeah, you turned to these other things in the mix, as you say, out of kind of exasperation, or were they already uh, firm interests? Yeah, some things were already firm interests. I've always um, 
I had a kind of desire, a thirst for research. It's always been a thing. So, you know, moving into musicology and, you know, I, I was a lecturer for 12 years and I loved it. Things that ran alongside were, were definitely always there. Um, but they came with challenges as well. And I have to say that the BBC are amazing. They're incredible employers. And I feel really, I feel really heard and I feel really cared for and... When it comes to access, um, I feel like they're on it, you know, and I can't say that for everything in the past. Mm. And I would say that I did have a period, especially when things were getting worse and, you know, moving to using a chair. For me, partially it was like wings. I got my wings. I got mm. my independence because I was just doing less and less and crutches are just the work of the devil I mean yeah. you know I talk about my shoulders dislocate the less I use my crutches the <laughs> less often my shoulders dislocate and then my neck stayed in place and then my jaw would pop out it's like crutches are just awful and I moved into my chair I was like okay I can now do stuff and for me it's always been about oh hang on if I do this it means I, I'm able to do that mm. so I, I found my chair very abling in loads of ways but it's hard for people to see that happening and to accommodate it. And it's hard when you are really keen to do stuff and not to be excluded mm. because you're suddenly using a chair. Um, it, it's hard to articulate that. And I had some really bad experiences. And I'd say experiences that were really, really detrimental to my mental well-being mm. really detrimental and have taken a very long time to get over and the BBC have been actually very healing in that respect okay so in some ways it's easier because I turned up and I was already disabled and so they're like right we need to do this this and this so you know uh, I don't need to make excuses for them they were brilliant mm. but by the same token it's often hard to articulate exactly what you need and it's often depressing when you have to basically describe your worst day to people who may employ you, whether long-term or short-term. Because if you don't describe your worst day, when that comes, you can't do your job. Mm. Um, and that's something that's quite difficult to get your head around and difficult to articulate at a time when you're actually coming to terms with that yourself. Um, you know, for years and years and years, if anybody ever took a photo, I'd get out of my chair for the photo to be taken so like anybody who snooped my facebook <laughs> or what you, be like oh well it's very recent you're in a chair I'm like no because the crutches or the wheelchair are always you know mm. a meter yeah. out of shot and perhaps it's vanity perhaps it's that I didn't accept it for a long time perhaps it's that I hoped for I mean I looked for answers for a really really long time you know despite saying it suddenly enabled me to do things I always considered it was kind of, this got me from A to B, and then at B I would do what I intended to do. But I think that when I came to realise that this was my reality and that was okay, and that people would still book you to do things and would still value what you had to say or give, then that really changed things. I was going to say it takes a lot of uh, courage to describe your worst day when applying for things. Yeah. Because you, yeah, same for mental illness you worry that people will see that as a and I, I know that legally they shouldn't use it against you or whatever but it, it takes a lot to it does. say look this could happen it does and even when there's real positive discrimination you know, I was going for jobs at one point and um I knew I, I, I knew I'd get an interview every time because I had to get an interview because you know legally you're going to get and I'm like please don't waste my time because it's exhausting yeah. going to all of the if you're yeah. not going to employ me I'd, I'd rather you say, and of course you can't say that and they can't say that back to you, but that's part of the exhaustion because you're like, I know you don't want to discriminate mm. and I believe you're not, but like, please don't drag me all the way to, <laughs> to these places yeah, if you've no so intention. True. I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's that fear and I think it's, it works on every level. I mean, the wheelchair is a good example because it's so obvious, but anything, be it mental health um, concerns or or any kind of invisible disability, or it doesn't even have to be classed as a disability, something that you carry with you, you don't want to have to admit to it because mm. you think, well, they're just going to take the easy option and employ the next person. And it's taken me a really long time to trust that and to trust that, that there is a level playing field and that 
they might even pick you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Rather than seeing it as a reason for them not to want you. Mm. Of course they won't want me because I'm in this... Well, it's just a bit more faff. There's always a bit yeah. more admin. It always takes a bit longer. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's stuff like that, and you think, oh gosh, well, it'd just be much easier if you know, and you know, they could just employ this person or this person instead. Yeah. And, and and yeah, I think that does take a lot of trusting and mm. believing in yourself. I mean, that's another thing we you've talked about is how the instrumental teacher is often. The one person they think they have to go to with yes. all of their problems because yeah. they will have the answers. Yeah. But did you find that, like, in your role as a kind of lecturer, you were kind of in a quite an interesting place of being in between that kind of very intense role and then also a kind of maybe clinical role or something? Mm. Did you feel like your own experience was able to sort of maybe not advise, but like give a kind of empathy? Yeah. Definitely. And I, I was I was an academic studies lecturer, but I was also a tutor. Mm. So I had my role was to oversee the, the academic and pastoral welfare of at times. I'm just trying to think probably 120 students, which sounds utterly ridiculous. Um, but, you know, many just sail through and absolutely mm. fine. But I I was quite young when I started. I was kind of mid 20s. And I think you're right. I think that students do need somewhere else to go and someone else to speak to. Um, <laughs> they would come to me with all sorts of things, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, which is probably not for right now. Um, and I think because I was in my early 20s and, and, and you know, would chat to them and give them a sp- safe space to talk, they really did come and use yeah. that. Um, but then, yeah, I, I I was there for quite a long time. And then in, in, in the process of being there, I was then in my chair and you know I, I, I could think off the top of my head of a, a dozen cases um, just right now of students who came and said I, I think I need to talk about something and I'm really fearful to actually tell my teacher mm. because as you say it's quite mm. an intensive relationship that you have and and you're trying to please them you're trying to make your way you're trying to impress visiting musicians coming in to, to give master classes and that kind of thing and you know, pain or anxiety or anything physical, the beginnings of RSI, things that they were trying to mask because either they didn't want to admit to it or reveal it because they were fearful they'd get pulled from a project yeah. or that they would be told to stop for a while and they're like, I can't stop because I've got exams coming up yeah. or because I've got this amazing gig that I really want to do. Um, and I, I was in a really privileged position that you know, they could come and talk and that they did come and talk and that I could then advise them either to go and see a very particular GP that we had a link to um, through the academy or um, BAPAM. Mm. Um, but the first thing to do really was to get them to talk to their teachers and the minute they'd broken that spell, they were like, it's fine, it's all going to be fine. I talked to them and they said, this is what I need to do. And, you know, I think there was only really one case that I can think of that 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 didn't end the way the student wanted it to mm. um and you know that's that's pretty good because otherwise you know as we know anything that's left and not addressed just gets worse mm. um yeah we've talked quite a lot between us and also mm. to other students about mm. um yeah the difficulties particularly with injuries or personal things talking to your instrumental teacher because of how much your your identity in the relationship with them is your playing and you feel like anything that's affecting that even under the surface you can't tell them because of who you are as a musician for you when playing was slowly fading out I know that you said you had other things going on but did you feel at all like you were losing your identity as a flautist yes yeah, I made excuses. <laughs> um, and then things in life changed too. Uh, I got pregnant. <laughs> and then I could say, oh, I'm on maternity leave. Yeah. Oh, I'm not ready to come back yet. And, uh, and then I moved abroad. And that, in a way, was a kind of way to hide from it for a while. <laughs> the problem with playing isn't just uh, access to stages. You know, I 
obviously can't stand for long either now. And there are ways around that. I used to take a stool, like a bar stool with me and keep that behind a chair and perch on that if I had a solo and then sit back down again. And you know, there are ways around that. Unfortunately, it's also affected my breathing. So when I really breathe properly <laughs> for long periods, it catches something really horrible, catches in there. And it's that got worse and worse. And and so in a way, the decision was made for me. Mm. So that was out of my hands. Occasionally, I play at home. We all know what happens when you've not played for ages. So. <laughs> You're really fresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, I could do this before. Um, and then, you know, you play a little bit longer and then it sounds good. And you're like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? What am I doing? And it sounds good. And then, uh, you know, I did get my flute out um, about six weeks ago. And I had quite a spiral afterwards mm. because... yeah. You know, it did exactly that. Oh gosh, my umbershaw's gone. Oh, my fingers are feeling all tired. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then it came, you know, and then it started really mm. ringing again. I'm like, oh, why am I not doing this? Yeah. And then the pain really was terrible. And that's why I'm not doing this. I always got to keep proving to myself why yeah. it's not happening. And that's tough. And I, you know, <laughs> I've been so fortunate. I, I have massive privilege because radio came along at just the right moment as I say we moved abroad and I made a deal with my husband that um uh he would we we moved for his job and I would write my book and we went for three years and I was like right this is fine if I come back with the book uh, so <laughs> no I did and I wrote it and, it and it worked and you know I was very fortunate I got a publisher and and it was all fine we came back and um just in time to launch it and that was you know uh, a real thing but just before we left um radio three got in touch and i'd done some you know interviews and things like that as a kind of <laughs> so-called expert um and then they said do you want to have a go at presenting i thought i wanted to do this forever yeah. and so i um i wrote a script we were, <laughs> we were house hunting in canada for a weekend and i wrote the script on the plane and came back on the red eye and and didn't admit to them that's what had just happened and <laughs> i went in and did it and they're like oh it's great do you want to do it again I'm like okay i've got to fess up what's happening here and um and they were incredible and uh yeah that producer was like just don't worry we'll make this work and came out to canada and we made some really fun shows and he showed me what I needed to do and I turned my airing cupboard into a little studio which was amazing prep for lockdown. He went to Canada? He flew out and um, that is yeah amazing. I mean I'd met him once and then I'm going to the airport with my baby daughter and saying to her not that she could speak but saying we've got to look out for him I'm not sure I can remember what he looks like <laughs> and he's gonna stay at our house for about 10 days <laughs> and literally our furniture just arrived and it was all a bit Aww. crazy but you know Rocked up and we're gone like a house on fire. He'd lost his credit card en route. Oh my <laughs> okay, god! Here's my credit card. You have that one. And yeah, and we flew to New York and made some shows there and and in Toronto as well. And yeah, and as I say, we sorted out. I bought some kit and he showed me what I needed to do. And um, and then it just kind of evolved from there. And I started making shows and um, and then worked through CBC. Um, do the kind of transatlantic yogurt pots um and that was great and and it, I just I can't tell you how that came along at the right moment mm. because I suppose that was kind of crunch time that yeah. it's like I have I can't stretch this maternity leave any longer <laughs> um you know what am I gonna do and yeah I mean radio is the most liberating thing you know no one can see me <laughs> and and that is just so liberating because again it's always my thing is like just book me for my brain don't book me for yeah. whether I can walk or not you know and and that's why I yeah I just took to it like a duck to water um to some extent like they spent a long time like helping well, me no, out that strikes me about about you is it's it is listening to you on air is just like I don't know. It really feels like you've been doing it forever. Mm. And it's and, and I'm really curious about the kind of early music connection and, and continuing that because I might think, and maybe you've kind of come to terms with it yourself, but watching a lot of Baroque players and talking about Baroque music all the time, you know, do you feel like the kind of the fluke has just 
completely morphed the love has sort of just morphed into talking about it experiencing it or do you ever kind of feel like a bit of jealousy or envy uh it's a funny one because I to begin with in some respects I wanted to be talking about symphony orchestras and situations Mm. that I wouldn't naturally Mm. be in um but the early music show was fantastic because especially in the early days um, I was storytelling, and I still am, but, you know, a lot of the kind of composer profiles and, you know, and it's it's fantastic because I get to pitch ideas, oh, can I make a show about this or this or that, you know, and, and that was a very easy transfer, just occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> I get these twinges of, oh, I wouldn't play it that way. <laughs> but I do think it really helps in order to get inside the music and to be able to describe what's going on and to be able to share insights and listen out for this and that and the other. So, you know, I often say that a a painting in the wrong frame Mm -hmm. is not going to be appreciated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a performance that's framed in just the right way, people might just, you know, take to in a way that they... I've never thought of of sort of presenting in that way. Mm -hmm. But it makes so much sense. It does, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. It's a a real thrill. I especially find it at Wigmore Hall. It just feels like you're sitting at the edge of the stage just whispering some secrets in the audience's ears just so that they just, like, hear it in a slightly different way. Or, you know, this is... Wow, that was stressful, though. Well, you have nothing to say. Well, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Yeah, but I think that that is where I get my kicks now. Right. And I suppose that does translate to going on stage with a piece you might have played a thousand times and finding something new in it and knowing that it's going to sound as fresh as the second time you played it. Mm. You know, it's, it's there. There's definitely loads of transferable skills. And also in the way that you present a show, there's, you know, usually a climax. There's a there's a minor key, pianissimo, Ooh. mysterious moment. There's a bit where it's like, and then you reveal this. And it's like, yeah. You know, you probably could, if you mapped out a piece of music and you mapped out an early music show script, you'd probably see similar sorts of things. I just wanted to know how you manage the, like, mental side of pain, because it has a sort of whole body experience it has to affect your brain as well in the way that you can work or the way that, you know, your mental health is or, or, or anything, you know. Do you feel like you might experience the same intensity of pain, but you sort of mentally deal with it better now? You know, in the beginning, was it a lot, was it really difficult to come to terms with mentally, would you say? Well, pain's all in your brain, isn't it? Mm. And it's what you don't want to hear when yeah. a healthcare professional says, well, it, it's all in your brain because you think, well, am I might just making an up <laughs> like could I just think myself out of this situation and I confess I I live in a ground floor flat and there's a corridor and it's been a corridor I've loved and hated because I've practiced walking in that corridor I've tried to relearn to walk in that corridor. you can reach both sides so it's brilliant in that respect um and I tried to walk in there just to prove to myself that when I do it my hip goes red and hot because I kind of have to see what's going on you know I had those times where I'm like, I don't quite believe this is happening I'm just imagining this is happening yeah. and I had to make it worse a bit like trying out my flute again yeah. Yeah. <laughs> had to just keep proving to myself that it's not just in my brain but it is of course it's generated by your brain and your nervous system and as I say in the beginning I was quite disbelieving mm-hmm. and had to keep testing it just to kind of you know it's kind of see it for what it is yeah exactly and it's a very destructive thing and I think I used to see a a a rehab pilates instructor and she would say to me how how are you and how's your body (laughs) it's not always helpful but it was helpful at that point because I could say how I felt but then I could say and my body's not keeping up and I do sometimes feel very much like that I get brain whiz and my brain's whirring and I've got all these ideas and blah 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 blah, and my body is just literally I'm like taking it with me to things Um, and that is that is tough and I think for a long time I searched for, for answers and I somehow believed it was going to go away and I've had to learn that it's not going to go away. And I, I spent three weeks in a um, a rehab programme, like an in-state rehab programme, and I had a physiotherapist that I worked with there who was fabulous. She was a real realist. 
and I would ask her questions and she'd give me straight answers, you know, and she'd say, I'd say, do you think I'll ever run again? She said, no, I don't think you will. And it was what I needed to hear. Mm. I needed that reality check. And I think that, you know, just as I say pain gives you boundaries because it tells you when to stop doing something. I think that for me, I had to reset what my boundaries were um, and see what I really could do. Um, and start to accept what I couldn't do. You know, sport for me is a real no-no. <laughs> um, and it's and it worries me. It worries me from like a heart health perspective. And I joke, half joke, that, you know, I do live radio instead because it gets my heart going. Yeah. <laughs> it saves me going to the gym. Um, because, you know, it is tricky. People say, oh, can you swim? I, I sort of can swim, but something very, very odd happens with the pressure in my hip. So it's oh, dislocated wow. a number of times in surgery and with accidents um, and something very horrible happens with the change in pressure from the water to outside the water and it, the worst is on an aeroplane any kind of g-force and landing is horrific so I've had quite a lot of help um, in in managing that because you know when you're in an airport what you really need is to be an absolutely excruciating pain isn't oh, it when, when you're trying to you negotiate anyway. that I'm trying to get off the airplane <laughs> has my wheelchair been smashed up what's it going it's like the g-force of landing is one of the worst triggers if you really really want it to cramp and be yeah. um so I think in terms of coming to terms with the pain I'd almost say now that I use it it's something I've see more as a force than as a punishment mm -hmm. and it felt very punishing to begin with because mm -hmm. pain is punishing isn't it you know it's cruel um but now I'm like well if you're coming with me you've got to, you've got to help me you've got to do something and I and I do feel like I have an option in what I present and I don't mean like on the radio as what I put out in life as to how I you know and and I do try to channel it as a as a kind of almost like an energy force. Mm. I don't mean Star Wars-ish. I just mean <laughs> that it, it, it needs to be something because it's not going away. So, um, and, and, you know, I've had some dark times. I, I, I'm really lucky that I don't really suffer depression. There are some things that are depressing and I can see that they're depressing mm. and I feel that they're depressing. You know, I'd love to go play tennis or <laughs> go for a run in the park and you know I used to see mums pushing prams down the road and just go I just want to do that yeah and I can but only for like 20 steps using the pram like a Zimmer frame um and that is depressing but I don't believe I've ever really been depressed mine comes out much more in anxiety and mm. tics and <laughs> OCD type stuff mm. um which again um, like the pain and in a very similar way had a lot of CBT and really tried to channel it into what I want to do and I think that kind of you know I run into the trap of exhausting myself from just pushing on and on and on because that is my coping mechanism I think mm -hmm. um, but equally if you took that away I don't think it's a denial thing. I think I was always like that as a child. I think it's always, I think that's part of my character. And when people say to me, well, maybe you should just stop working. And they have, like my osteo said, have you ever thought about a life in which you just focused on your health? And it really made me think. Oh. But I then cried a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, went, I can't imagine that because mm. I work really hard to get to a place where I can go and do what it is that I want to do. Mm. And, you know, there are so many things that you can do um, that that's, that's part of it. So in terms of adjusting and working through those changes and working with, working with the pain, mm. not against the pain, I think that was the real mindset. Um, and that was the thing that took a really long time. But there's a certain amount of pain that is a known quantity now. And I only really panic when there's something very new that I don't recognise. Like my pain is such a friend and foe. It's there and we know what's going on with each other. Um, when something new comes along, I'm like, that worries me. Yeah. There was something that you said or described your documentary. You, I think you said um, it was a meditation and reflection on pain rather than a fact-finding mission to solve pain. And that kind of sounds just generally how you deal with the pain now yeah um which is 
I guess where we've sort of come to with mental illness as well but it, and it's working with rather than against which is easier on some days than others that's, yeah that's what I feel like it's important for me to hear that today yeah because I just said to you earlier yeah things are getting a bit worse for me with anxiety and the first kind of feeling I feel is that I failed and then hearing you say no like I work with it you know if, if I, I kind of wish I could could tap in a bit more to that like idea of working with my anxiety like it's not out to get me rather than I always kind of feel like, oh, no, I fail because I've let it take over or whatever. So, You know, in your case and my case, just the same, to accept that actually it is part of your character mm. and people do love you for it. Yeah. You know, at times when I get very anxious, and that's very different to you, but when I get very anxious, I, I become very particular and... At one point, someone said to me, well, I'd employ you because you're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's mm-hmm. and you're going back to check that the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. And, you know, I translate quite a lot of that into radio work and the precision that you need in that. And I know that's OK. Yeah. And I do obsess about things like speaking to time yeah. <laughs> and that kind of stuff. And that's all right. And that's part of my character, part of my DNA that I can use and celebrate rather than being like oh gosh it's it's quite destructive I have to check this and I've checked this and have I numbered the pages well yeah I have and it's good job that you checked that right now get on and do it you know it's like knowing how far you can take it before it does and you have to you know sometimes say yeah I need some time out because Mm. this you know I've been in bed all day today Mm. um because I knew I was doing this this evening yeah and because I have to feel like I've achieved something and I'll go home and I've achieved something because I've done this. The fact that I've written scripts in bed today, you know, radio listeners aren't going to know that those scripts were written in bed. Yeah, that's so true. But I had to give in to my legs because they weren't cooperating and it's like, fine, we'll do this in bed then. <laughs> um, oh, I like that. You know, so it's yeah. kind of, it's like having an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other and doing a bit of a deal with both. Yeah. You did say that you previously have kind of put the crutches and the wheelchair out of shot and it feels like maybe it's just the impression that I'm getting from your online presence now that you're you feel more able to talk about things um was there a certain point which like for example the inspiration behind doing the documentary was there a point where you were like I just want to talk about this or was it just the kind of The documentary was a real turning point and I thought really long and hard about making it. I'd actually pitched it as a TV show years ago and I'm so glad it didn't get commissioned because I wasn't ready to make it. And then the opportunity came up because there was a BBC-wide disability awareness week and one of the commissioners mentioned it and I thought, "Mm, yeah... And the same producer, Les, who had uh, worked with me in Canada right from the very beginning, you know, when he'd come out, he he didn't know me and we bonded really quickly and he just accepted every bit of this wheeling hot mess <laughs> um, and, you know, carried me and carried the chair and, you know, we got stuck in Central Park and we decided to take the subway in New York and, you know, all these things are not very accessible. And he was like, it's fine, we've got this, da da da, da. <laughs> And so we'd had lots of experiences and he'd seen bad days too, you know. He'd seen me sit on the floor of a car park and cry and go, this is too hard, I can't do this right now. And he'd be like, that's okay, take some time and then we'll go in and do it. I'm like, right, fine, I'm there. So I really trusted him and I really you know, felt it was the right time and he was the right person to make it with. And I felt like I could be honest because it's easy to come out with platitudes and regurgitate things that you've been advised. And, you know, there are lots of lines I could say. Um, it's lovely talking to you because I don't feel like I'm saying them. We <laughs> can just chat about this. But, you know, it, it really was a, a meditation. And, and it wasn't called The Silence of My Pain when we started. It was going to be called The Sound of My Pain. 
Wow. Um, and we started it, and, and I said to him, it's not, you know, I, well, I thought I'd find something, but right. I'd hoped I'd find something, because, as I say, and as you mentioned earlier, you often feel like music should be your tool. It's yeah. like the thing that is right inside you, and it's there, and it's there to be used. And so many people had said to me, you know, use your music. Don't you have music on when you're trying to do it? I'm like, no, I do not. <laughs> and, oh, do that to it. Why would you do that to it? Show some respect, woman. Um, you know, and... <laughs> And as it went on, I was like, Les, I don't know I'm going to find anything. Mm. I really don't think it's, I don't think that's the answer. Because we, even when I pitched it, I pitched it in a way that I didn't really know how it would end. And I thought, well, look, this is only going to be a, an honest and true thing. If I do find an ending in this, yeah. you can't go on a journey knowing where you're going to end up. It's not much of a journey, is it? Um, and I, I, you know, I thought, am I going to end up with hard rock or jazz or something that I haven't played but I would find another outlet in me, and it, and it, it didn't happen. And then I, I just realised, as I actually listened properly to what I was saying to, to other people who were also in pain and, and did use music, and the more they told me what they did do, the more I went, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> it's not, that's fantastic that that works for you, but I cannot imagine doing any of those things. And I'd sit in a studio, and I realised I'd get to studios early and just feel so calm um not pain-free but just calm and I could listen and some of that white noise crackle that comes along with pain that just you know actually in proper silence which actually is so rare isn't it it's hard to find proper <laughs> when yeah. you try and record anything outside or in a building you hear every little thing but in a studio and, and the sound there was something so calming I thought, why do I love radio so much and I was like mm. do you know what I get there and it's quiet and then um I sat in a uh, a concert at Oxford Leader Festival and it was about silence and there were these really poignant moments of silence. Um, Benjamin Apple and Shalto Kainoch were performing and it was really powerful and I got really emotional and I realised that what I'd been looking for was was you know there all along and it and it was just yeah, admitting as a musician that actually <laughs> what I really craved was silence. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I said it there and I, I hold to it that I don't use music not that the people I spoke to used music or something yeah. I never abused yeah. music but I need the silence to get myself in a good place or in a place where I can then accept the music and appreciate the music and love the music and let it in mm. um, and that I find yeah really a really powerful reminder of, of how I do cope with stuff mm. um, the other thing we should talk about, maybe, if there's time and you want yeah, to, um, is the idea of fascination or flow. Um, because I think, and the more I've thought about it, I think it's something that musicians experience all the time. And I think it's something that I've experienced since being tiny and that everybody does. And it's just quite hard to articulate it. Um I talked to um, a, a neurologist and he explained it as getting yourself into a, almost a meditative state. It's a, the state of flow that you're in where it's like time stands still. Um, and I described it to him with a, a, a part of the B minor mass, the Benedictus, where, you know, I'd, especially when I was playing and before it was you know, really debilitating. Before I before I took a stool, when I was still crutches to my seat in the orchestra and then stand up to play, and I'd stand up to play, and I'm like, oh, boy, that hurts. And then, you know, you start, you get through the introduction, and then singer starts, and then... And, and, and we all know this feeling of, like, oh, gosh, did the last bar just happen? And did, mm -hmm. did I just, you know... And you have it in the car, don't you, when you're driving along, you go, oh, the last 100 yards, or... You know, it can happen in, in so yeah. many situations, but I think for musicians... It doesn't mean that you're not present, but you're so enveloped in the music yeah. that you're kind of carried along and and before you know it, the aria's finished and, and you sit down and you're like, well, where did the time go? Yeah. And and he said it, it only really works in, in pieces where it's a 
a little bit too difficult for you. <laughs> and I was like, well, Benedictus is quite hard. Um, you know, uh, so if it was, you know, if it was too easy, you wouldn't get to that place because your brain wouldn't be focusing in, in yeah. such a way. You, it would take ever such a lot of effort to really, you know, imagine playing three blind mice and really trying to put your whole soul into it. So maybe that is the case. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, um, but it has to be something that is just slightly out of reach, perhaps and that you become so absorbed in it. And I think that it's not always something that lasts the whole piece. It may just last a few bars, or it may just last any like, and, and it's, it's that real absorption. Um, and the thing is that the um, Osana from the B minor mass, if I hear it out of context, it starts up this pain that is so intense in my hip um, that it takes my breath away and um, there are a few pieces of music that's just a very particular one where that happens and and in the process of the documentary um, which perhaps isn't quite as, as much of a surprise because it's where it starts um, but that's what we worked out and he'd helped me mm. to understand that you have this state where I, you don't feel pain does your body is your body in pain yes but your brain is so absorbed in something else that it, it is distracted from your pain but the point is that the pain hasn't actually gone away mm. in that time so when you sit down again and I sit down the pain floods into the into my hip mm. and then when I hear that moment out of context it floods in again because it's almost hardwired it's part of the ridiculous nerve ending problems that are cycling round in there between my brain and my hip and that piece of music has got caught in that cycle and when I hear it even though I say to myself you haven't just played the better things <laughs> you haven't just sat down why is it ramping up and ramping up and I don't I find that very difficult to control and um, so this idea of fascinational flow is very enticing because it is that release and there is this moment where you're not in pain you think you're not in pain <laughs> um and that's the closest i get to that now which i do get is live radio mm. um and it's addictive yes and i was thinking about kick from it yeah 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 um probably don't tell radio three yet. <laughs> like, like, you got addicted to put you on a rehab program <laughs> exactly they're gonna get you on everything <laughs> <laughs> like, keep her out of pain stick her back on yeah. it um <laughs> But, you know, it, it, it comes at a cost because it, it, it you know, and so I, I can be really tired after, a, especially if it's a long broadcast, but I wouldn't swap it for the world because I think that's what really keeps me going. That's what gets me out of bed, yeah. and what, you know, and that's what we need. And that's what, you know, when it comes down to it, that's what musicians are doing the whole time because everybody gets a kick out of it. You don't need to be in pain to get a kick out of that idea of fascination because it's so alluring it's like another world of you know walk time yes exactly yeah. that exactly that it also sounds like the the flow is a break from the pain as is live radio but so is the silence in the studio mm -hmm. before yeah so it's yeah. interesting that it's the distraction but also the noise and it's well it's the pacing yeah it's like the way you pace yourself through playing a piece of music mm. you know you have those moments where it's like, it just you know there's some release and then this is a really intense bit and then it's you know and it, I suppose for me it's like that that mm. there are those different moments and yeah it's it's powerful and again it's one of those things like if it didn't hurt it'd be fascinating but it, it does hurt and it is fascinating yeah. because you know you want to find where that happens in other parts of your life and I think it I think it does um and I think that is a definitely for me a coping mechanism and the thought that that wouldn't be there so when my <laughs> osteo says have you thought about not working yeah. and focusing on your health I'm like that's why you cry why yeah <laughs> why would I take away all of those real highs the highs are worth the lows yes. um, and you know that is a it's a it's a price worth paying for and yeah sometimes in its cruelest moments yeah I, I was at a point where I would walk on stage again was this vanity was this what was this all about that I would use my wheelchair to get to the edge of the stage then take 
a walking stick, walk the tents out. And I'd be like, yeah, I can, it's fine. I can walk across the stage. I've got enough steps to do that. And I did. So I would get to the middle of the stage and be like, ladies and gentlemen, I really hurt. <laughs> and then I'm alive. Hello. La, 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 la. Like, why am I doing this to myself? Who am I so now I go out in my wheelchair and go, hello, I'm not in pain. <laughs> Let's start, yeah. shall we? It's a, it's a weird, weird yeah. thing. But, you know, the back of my mind, was it, well, if I... If I go out in my chair, is this like, are people unco- am I uncomfortable? Are people uncomfortable? Would they rather have somebody? Walk? I mean, nobody has ever suggested that they'd rather have somebody walk out instead of wheel out. You know, it's not it's not a thing, but it's all of those little, um, you know, voices in your head that tell you without you know. And that's it's probably this is me with language again. It's not voices in my head, is it? It's but it's all of the okay. Judgments. It's the judgments. Yeah. It's the it's the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, mm. and the devil's going, yeah, but you know, not everybody needs to wheel out, and the angel's yeah. like, oh, <laughs> why not? But the angel is very quiet in those moments. It yeah, comes back to like a sense of self worth as well, because it's like when you're saying, "I want to walk out there," and the thought of you standing there in pain, it's like you're not fully yourself. Like the thought of someone else taking your place on the early music show or whatever. Like, that's quite sad. Like, the mm, thought, quite know. sad. That's really sad. But also, utterly ridiculous. When you think about it, it's like, I don't need to be able to walk to present the early music show, so yeah, why would yeah. they need to... But but yet, why did I think that for so... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> again, yeah. it's the, the amazing liberation of, of, of radio that, you know, nobody can see. And, you know, when I'd made that, that documentary, the best bit about it was the number of people who wrote to me saying... I played this to my family because it lets talk about it afterwards. And that's what I really wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Yes, a, a, a meditation, somewhere to, some space to think about it, but also just a way to talk about it because I hadn't. You always want a clean start, don't you? Mm. Conversations with friends and family and employers, they never start from scratch, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in a way, for me, that my relationship with the BBC did start from scratch because I was already disabled when I rocked up. But, you know, so many conversations don't start that way and it's difficult to bring stuff up. Yeah. And one of the real joys of having made that documentary was that it was a place to remind my friends, not not about, you know, day-to-day stuff, but just to say, we can talk about this. And do you know what, when you take a photo, I stay in my chair now, I think. And that's okay. And it, it really did change a lot of that. Wow. It's so comparatively recently as well. Yeah, that's only two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous. And I've sat in this for oh, nearly 12 years. Yeah. yeah. I think what struck me about it was the... It's always so hard to call it brave. I really hate calling calling things like that brave. But I think when, when I, I know classical music in general, and to a certain extent the BBC, and I'm sure they would agree, um, there can be a, a sense of, you wanting it to be quite jolly and quite upbeat and you know the listeners are all very you know excited about classical music and you know I I sometimes think maybe they they don't want to hear about our problems that's kind of where I feel like the bravery was or the the sort of difference was to other things I'd heard was it was a real witness to like something really negative I suppose Mm -hmm. but out of that just such a truth of your experience and your experience as both a musician and like a broadcaster and and as a person, yeah, like I feel like you don't get many experiences to hear someone's No. And I don't think journey. you get many opportunities to do that. And often you criticize, oh, you know, it's the week of this, it's the day of this, oh, it's yeah, the you know, yeah. it's like endless, you know Awareness. Awareness of something. Yeah. But actually that was a really positive example of that, in that there was suddenly a platform and it was like, take this platform. Yeah. Um, because it wouldn't rock around that easily otherwise. I have no regrets. Um, and I don't want you to think that I'm a kind of endlessly cheerful person. No, I think no, I am no. a cheerful person, but I, yeah. you know, it doesn't mean that we don't have major doubts. Mm. And I think that at times where I have, and I've rung Les <laughs> and said, I'm not coping this week, mm. you know. And he said, go listen, go listen to it again. Listen to what you said, because you really meant it. And, you know, there was one particular time and he said that, and I did, and it was right. And wow. and it, as you say, it's a witness. It's a it's a reality, and it's a truth. Yeah. And um, and it doesn't mean that then I bounce back. I was like, brilliant, right? Let's go and talk about Joscan <laughs> um, at all. It was it was just that you know you accept 
there are very few times that you get to reflect on who you are without it being a vanity project and I really hope that it wasn't a vanity project and not it was a, a chance to just not redefine myself because just to define myself mm-hmm. because in some respects yeah lots of things have been hidden you know Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a very invisible disability for lots of people if I if it hadn't affected my hip I'm not sure you'd see it if it you know yeah because you know it's such a massive spectrum and you know some people are way worse place than I am you know I don't have feeding tubes and I, I can stand up I can transfer myself out of this I can drive a car I can do you know lots of things that I could do that people don't do with it and also some people who aren't affected as severely at all but it's you know it's absolutely their day-to-day life and mm. and so I think that anything that is so many things are hidden that's what where I was coming from and and we mask things we hide things and we only reveal them to ourselves or to our partners or at home and for me it was just an opportunity to introduce myself as who I really am and beyond the voice on the radio that can sound chirpy at six o'clock in the morning. Um, it doesn't start at six o'clock, so it starts at half past six. It's done chirpy before it You're starts. You're there at six. I know. Actually. In the silence. Um, yeah, in a great time. Um, but it's, it was an opportunity to say, these are the things that I hide in order to do what I do. And I'm going to carry on doing what I do. I'm not going to hide them anymore because I don't need to hide them because there's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, It's not quite who I was. It's not something that people at school would recognise in me. But actually, this is it and it's okay. We talk about it a lot. We know lots of friends who talk about their stuff. But to hear it from somebody that you recognise was incredibly powerful. So thank you. Oh, no, no, no. I'd say it's a pleasure. It's 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 not pleasurable. But it's, you know, um, it's a gift actually in lots of ways. And and I think that if people felt that they knew where to go and who to talk to, and they could see a route through it, it wouldn't feel like such a massive admission that there's something that's not quite right, or something that they want to reveal about themselves, or you know, there's a choir member who really needs that bar stool. Yes. And that would keep them singing, but they can't quite say it and it's going to get too far and then that's not the right thing. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's the part that, that makes me really sad. A tiny, tiny little win. I have a quite big win today, actually. You've had a lovely win. Do it. Got a new job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Well Thank done. Thank you. Yeah. Tell a, us what it is. Can you tell us what it is? She's the queen. No. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Everyone. Especially because you were so stressed about getting a job. Yeah, it feels like it's further in my kind of direction of where I want to end up. So, yeah, that's my win. What about you? I got my car two days ago. <gasps> that is a win. I know. It had eight miles on the clock. Eight <laughs> Where that? did it go? <laughs> Just like out of Yeah, yeah, where London. had those eight miles be? Um, yeah, yeah, I've got a motability car and my wheelchair fits in the boot perfectly. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And it's it's at least half electric. I'm gonna have oh. to learn to plug it in. Ooh. Yeah, and remember and if charging my phone's anything to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I, I really hope for a day where I can charge the car and then charge the wheelchair battery from the car and charge the phone battery from the wheelchair it's like some kind of it would make it's so like much sense. it's like the cat chasing the mouse with the dog chasing the cat yeah. or the yeah. woman who ate the fly yeah that's the one who ate doesn't the end cat. well though no what, ha- what well. happens at the end oh my god she explode or something yeah she she didn't she she, she ate a horse she's dead of course Oh, yeah. Yeah, not good. <laughs> anyway. That's not going to happen. No, that's not going to happen. But yeah, that would be the dream, wouldn't it? Plug the phone into the wheelchair, plug the wheelchair into the car. And the car into... Into my house. You see, that's what I can't do. That's why it's dangerous, because ah. I can't charge it at home, so I'm going to have to oh, find right. on-street charging oh, There's some around here, aren't there? Yeah, loads. And it means that I should go and, you know, work in a nice cafe while it charges <gasps> or something. What a... 
change. I know. I know. But the thing is that I've thought about this for quite a while and now I've actually got to do it. <laughs> but she looks good, doesn't she? She's, so good. She's a, she's a real... She's a beauty. Yeah, she's, she's a keeper. She's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Oh, Rebecca? What's your win? I don't know. Um, what about your gig being cancelled? Is that a win? No, because I really wanted to do it. Oh, sorry. Mm. You had a nice time, though. I had a nice time not doing What did much. you do instead? You just slept. Did she... I sleep? I went climbing. I'm getting really into climbing at the climbing. moment. Climbing. Which is really exciting. Oh. And... I did a few routes. Indoors or outdoors? There are outdoor ones, but it's mostly indoors. Okay. Yeah, I like, send, they call it sending routes, where you like get to the top of a route and like complete it, basically. Oh, right. Did a few that I, because they reset all the routes quite regularly. Okay. So whenever I go and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back to that one and try it again, it's gone. But I've been more regularly so that some of the ones that I'm still working on are still there when I go back. Yeah, because they were like color coded as well. Mm. Can you well, that's a win. The improvement, like yeah, each time you go. Yeah. I've never even tried it. Because um, we did say that you should come, but you're probably going to be quite bad. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine your, your abuse? I guess. <laughs> yeah, because they have. Is any consolation? <laughs> I'd be worse. <laughs> I will take pride in that I'll be the best one here. <laughs> <laughs> that's a win. <laughs> Whereas I like, usually am the worst in the group. So this, yeah, this makes me feel pretty this good. This is actually. not ending well. <laughs> I feel like I could maybe upsell... No, no, I couldn't upsell down. That would really hurt, wouldn't it? I'm just trying to think of a way that I could just... No, because my, basically my shoulders would pump out. Oh, yeah. and then, Most of the no. time we just lie on the floor and watch other people. Okay, I'd be great at that. And there's moment. a really nice cafe. Yeah, I could ace the cafe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a cafe in there? Yeah. Okay, Hannah and I would be in the cafe. So Why do you think fun. I go? <laughs> oh, that's so fun, though. Yeah. But thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's been the absolute highlight of my week.